I invite you to join me in turning in your pew Bibles to page 53, where we find our scripture reading this morning, Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, May you enlighten us by your spirit. May we see in this, your word, the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The goodness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, uh, I have a question for you this morning before we get into our text, and it's a very important question, and I think it's, it's a question maybe some of you who are uh, more advanced in years than I am uh, have probably thought quite, about, quite a bit about. And, uh, and that is, could God sanctify us completely the moment that he saved us? Just sort of like, bam, you're just glorified right there. Poof. Could God have done that? If we know anything about God, if we know anything about the fact that he is the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, if we know anything about the fact that God could say, let there be land, and there was land, oceans, and there was oceans, at one point, there was nothing, God spoke, and then things came into existence. If we know anything about God, then the way that we have to answer that question is yes. Here's a follow-up question, then. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? And this is why I said maybe some of you who are more advanced in years have thought about this 
uh, more than I have. Because as years go on and as you continue to have struggles and as you continue to grow in godliness and holiness and as you continue to what it seems like learn the same lesson over and over again from a different angle, maybe you start to cry out to God, God, can you just hurry up already? But the reason why God doesn't sanctify us with a snap of his fingers Is because there is purpose in the process. There's purpose in the process. And we're going to see that this morning in this encounter that Jacob has. Our theme this morning is this. We win with God by losing to God. We win with God by losing to God. We're going to find all about how God brings Jacob to a moment of surrender and how that moment is transformative in his life. So, we've got uh, three points this morning. And each of these points, I think, are going to draw out a principle that we can take with us as we go throughout this week. Um, The first point that we have is afraid and alone. And that's the first few verses of our passage this morning. Verses 22 through 24a. The second is wrestling with God. Verse 24b through 30. And the the third is limping in the Lord. Verse 31 and 32. So um, as we go through these points, I'm going to try to draw out what I think is a principle which we can carry with us that we can apply in our lives, okay? So let's look at that first point, afraid and alone. If you know anything about the story up to this point, uh, if you were paying attention last week, what's happened is that Jacob is surrounded on all sides. He's put between a rock and a hard place, right? He's got Laban to his back. And he's promised Laban that he will not do anything to Laban. And Laban has promised he will not do anything to Jacob. And they've created a boundary marker. And this boundary marker basically says, uh, Laban says, I will not cross this to go over to you. And you will not cross this to go over to me. And so Jacob is entering into the promised land. And as he's entering into the promised land, he's reminded of all the immoral things that he did and all the ways in which he provoked his brother Esau. And the last words that he heard from Esau's mouth was, I'm going to murder that guy. And so he sends word to Esau, all buttery and smooth. And what does Esau do? He gets his 400 guys and he says, let's go. And Jacob thinks, this is the end for me. This is the end for me. I can't go back, but I can't go forward either. I am stuck here. And so what Jacob does is he he does what we often do when we're left without any other option, without any other choice. He prays, right? He prays to the Lord, but he doesn't just pray to the Lord. He, He seeks to still try to pacify Esau by sending forward these gifts and all these arrangements that hopefully Jacob will say, you know, Hopefully Jacob is thinking Esau would be like, well, how can I kill this guy? He just made me rich, you know? That's basically what Jacob is thinking, right? And this is what happens then. After all that has taken place, he sent his servants. He sent his livestock in front of him. He is left alone with his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and some of his possessions. And this is what he finally decides to do. He says, I have to consider them. I have to consider their safety. And so I'm going to send them across 
this river, the Jabbok, I'm going to send them across there. And so that whole night, what he's doing is he's, he's getting wet. He's soaking wet. He's bringing his children. He's bringing his wife. He's bringing his possessions all the way to the other side of this creek because he's thinking, if Esau comes and he comes to kill me, then at least maybe they can get away because they'll have this land barrier, this, uh, this river between him and, and, and my wife and my children and, and, and all that kind of stuff, right? And so this is what he does. He sends them over to the other side, and he comes back, and he prepares to face what he has done. He prepares to face his brother Esau. And this is what we see here. After he sent them across the stream, he sent all his possessions. Verse 24a, so Jacob was left alone. Cold, wet, afraid, and alone. Faced with the consequences of his own lack of character. Scared in the dark and with no distraction but his own thoughts. His own thoughts. What can we draw from this? One of the things that we can draw from this is that that is exactly very often where God will meet us. When we are afraid and alone, where there are no distractions. I used to listen to this song that was popular some time ago by a band, 21 Pilots, called Car Radio. And the whole premise of this song, Car Radio, was essentially a story that the the singer of this band was telling that at one point he had a junky car and his car radio got stolen. And his car radio got stolen, and, and, and that actually began to make him struggle with depression because every time he would drive around in his car, he had nothing to distract him. He had no car radio. He had nothing he could listen to. And if you think about it, today in our day and age, that's what it is. I mean, you go to the store, people have headphones in. They're not even listening to you or, or, or talking to people around them. They're listening to music. They're listening to podcasts. They're listening to, there's always something to distract us, right? There's always something to grab our attention. There's always something we can be looking at. We can be scrolling through. We can be liking. We can be watching. And all that is, in many ways, is a replacement for the quieting of our soul that only God can do. And it's when you put the phone down and you take the headphones out It's when God pushes us to a place where we're afraid, alone, in the dark, where there's nothing but quiet. That is the place where God meets us. And if you wanted any more evidence for that reality, then may I point you to our dear Savior who sanctifies and beautifies that reality When on the eve of his crucifixion, he goes to what? A garden. And he goes to be by himself. And he steps away from his disciples. And he cries out to his father. In a place where he's afraid and alone. The son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity through whom all things were made, and in whom all things are held together, afraid and alone. 
in the garden praying to his father. Saying much just like Jacob did in his prayer. God, if there be any other way. May this cup pass for me. Right? If you've got things going on in your life, if your mind and heart is stirred up with so many things and worries and anxieties, may I encourage you? Get alone with God. Get alone with him. That's where he meets us. That's where he deals with those things that are in us. And I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying it to you, okay? So let's look at this second point, wrestling with God. What we find out is that when Jacob is afraid and alone in the dark, soaking wet, and is scared for his life, all of the chickens have come home to roost in his life. All the, the, the conniving and all the trickery that he's done has come to this very moment. What we find is that somebody's there to meet him. Verse 24b says, And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. Then the man said, Let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What's your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name will be Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome and Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. What is this encounter? It is a very popular encounter. It's a very popular moment in scripture. It's one that we talk about often. It's one that's uh, chock full of metaphors about wrestling with God, right? And if you go online, you could probably find a, a bunch of sermons about how this is, um, this is the call for us to wrestle with God in prayer, right? Uh, you could see a parallel to the, uh, the persistent widow, that you go to God and you, and you don't stop annoying God until God gives you what you want, right? That's what this is about. This is about Jacob wrestling with God. This is about Jacob holding on to God and saying, I will not let you go until you give me what I want, being persistent in prayer, that would be a, a way that some people will look at this passage, this moment of wrestling with God. But I'd like to, to look at it differently. Because I think the scripture itself is actually calling us to look at this differently. If you remember what I said, our theme was this morning, is that we win with God by losing to God. But how can you look at this wrestling match and not get the idea that Jacob is the victor at the end, right? Particularly when it comes to the changing of his name. Well, the first thing I want to note is that if you look in verse 24b, you'll notice that what is said here is that Jacob is not wrestling with this man, but that a man is wrestling with Jacob. The man came, and can you imagine, in the dark, Jacob can't see anything. All he has is the moon and the stars in the sky to light his path, to light his surroundings. Jacob can't see anything. A guy starts coming up to him and starts wrestling him. 
starts trying to take him down, starts trying to attack him, right? He must be thinking, is this Esau? Has he, has he secretly ninjified himself and come in here to get me in the middle of the night? This is where I'm going to end my life? What, my life is going to end in this way? Is this what's going on here? No. What you see here is that the man is the aggressor. The man is wrestling Jacob, not the other way around. The man is breaking Jacob down, not the other way around. And here's a couple things that I want you to take note of in relation to that. Verse 25, when it says, The man saw that he could not overpower him. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now I have a question for you. If you were wrestling with somebody and you discovered that all they had to do was touch your hip and basically you would be crippled for the rest of your life, do you think you are the more powerful one in this situation or they are? Okay? At that point, I would be thinking, I'm avoiding this guy's fingers because if he touches my face, it's going to melt. Right? That's what I would be thinking. And we know that Jacob realizes this. We know that Jacob realizes that he is not the more powerful person in this situation because what does he ask of this man? He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I have a question for you. Is it the weaker person or the stronger person that does the blessing? Is it the lesser person or the greater person that does the blessing? The one who is greater is the one who blesses, right? And Jacob acknowledges that this man that he's wrestling is the one that is greater because he is asking him for a blessing. And this is what is being communicated here. That in this moment when God has surrounded Jacob on all sides and he has pushed him into this little tiny middle of the night dark wrestling match, that this is what God desires to do when we are afraid and alone and finally come to him. This is an answer to Jacob's prayer. And what God is desiring to do in Jacob's life and in our life is that he desires... To break our self-sufficiency. He desires to break us down. So that we will stop depending on our own strength and ability. Our own strength and ability. Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism actually has something to say about this reality. It's a beautiful... Um, testimony. The Lord's Day 11 says this. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because he saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. Question 30. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? The answer is no, emphatically. Although they boast of being his by their deeds, they deny the only Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept the Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. Why is it that God desires to break down our self-sufficiency? 
Because God has provided for us a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ. And for us to even say that we need to do anything of our own is an offense to him. It's like God saying, here, I offer you this $10 million checking account. And we say, no, we want our $100 checking account. Thank you. Thanks, God. Thank you, but no thank you. When, what God really wants us to do is close our checking account and be totally dependent upon his. Not that you can boil Jesus down to money. I'm just using that as an analogy. This is actually something that Jesus does in his very own ministry. If you know the story of the Syrophoenician woman, this is a woman who is a Gentile. She is not of the house of Israel, and she comes up to Jesus, and she says, Jesus, my daughter is sick. My daughter has a demon. Please come help this, uh, my daughter. She's possessed by this demon. And, and Jesus seems to do something that is appalling to many people's sensibilities today. He basically says, I'm here for the people of Israel. Go away, dog. And you might wonder, why would Jesus be so seemingly rude to a woman? And it's in order to break down her self-sufficiency. It's in order to tear away everything in her that makes her feel worthy of receiving the grace and the mercy and the healing of Jesus. And so she says to him, yes, but even dogs can receive crumbs when they fall from the table. And as somebody who has two dogs and little small children, I know exactly what she means. And he says, wow, how great a faith. Jesus did this seemingly rude thing in order to expose the purity and the beauty of her faith, a faith that shamed his own people. He put her in a hard place. He said harsh words to her so that you could see that she was dependent upon nothing but his mercy, but his grace. And need I remind you all that outside of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, given to us by God, we are all dogs. We are no more worthy of Christ's grace than the Syrophoenician woman. Yet he gives it anyways. God overcomes our hostility towards him. God breaks us down. He gets us to a place where we cry out to him, God, if there is any other way, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, may it be another way. But what does Jesus say after that? Not my will, but yours be done. Not my wills, not my will, but yours be done. And here in this moment, when Jacob asks for a blessing, what happens? The man asks him, what's your name? Do you think this man doesn't know his name? No. He needs Jacob to confess 
who he is in that moment. I am a deceiver. I am a conniver. I am a trickster. I am this person. I am a sinner. I have to confess. I have to say the same thing about me that God says about me. Because in that moment when I say, yes, I am a sinner, and I am, a, I am somebody who has fallen from the glory of God. I am somebody who is broken. I am somebody who is a sinner. When I say the same thing about me that God says about me concerning my sinful condition, that's when the transformation can happen. That's when the breakdown happens. You are not depending upon yourself anymore. You are rightly seeing yourself as somebody whose checking account is empty. It's actually worse than empty. It is in the negative. It is in the deficit. It is such, so deep into the red numbers that you can never crawl out. And you are saying that to God. And this, what does God do in that moment? He gives Jacob a new name. He says, you will no longer be deceiver, but Israel. Israel. And you can see the textual note there. It says he struggles with God. It makes sense because the, uh, the commentary that this man gives to uh, Jacob is that because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. But the structure of this word where the, the name of God is at the end, El, and the, uh, the verb is attached to the beginning of, of the name, is very familiar in other names in the Bible. And oftentimes what this means is something about God's character when these name structures are in the Bible, and not necessarily something about the person who's named, right? And so in this case, this name is not actually about Jacob's character, but about God's. The name would not be translated, he struggles with God, but that God prevails. God prevails. That the new name that Jacob gets is a name that it encapsulates the end to his self-sufficiency. That you win with God by losing to God. You win with God by finally giving in to God and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And that's why what we're told also about this encounter that Jacob has is that he receives a limp. Verse 25 tells us that the man touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. We see that Jacob's prevailing over God is simply a, a dependence upon God. What does Jacob do? Jacob isn't trying to do any cool maneuvers now. He's clinging to God. That's all he's doing. He's clinging to him. That's what faith is, clinging to God and saying, I have nothing but you. I have nobody but you. So Jacob clings to God in his weakness. He has been given this limp. And we see also that as Jacob leaves this place, he finds that it, he's still limping. What is this meant to be? We read also that uh, it was a tradition or something that was done in memory of Jacob that the people of Israel wouldn't eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because of this encounter. This isn't something written down in the law, but it's sort of just a memorial 
um, a practice, a cultural practice. Well, it's a reminder that when God overcomes our self-sufficiency, what we find in that moment is surrender. What we find in that moment is the Christian life's strength is in its weakness. Paul himself found this out. He tells a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about how he was given these great and wonderful visions and in order that he might not become prideful and boastful about these encounters that he had in the heavenly realms, God gave him from Satan a thorn in the flesh. And Paul many times went to God saying, God, take this thorn in the flesh from me. Please take it from me. But each time he was told, no, I gave this to you on purpose so that you might discover this reality. My grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. So then Paul says, therefore when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. The life of faith is one of strength and weakness, independence and continual surrender. Many people who are atheists like to say, religion is just a crutch. You only depend upon religion in times of weakness, in times you, you, you don't want to have to take responsibility. You don't want to have to live your life. And you know what I have to say to that? You betcha. This life is too hard to live without a God who created everything and has a purpose for the life that I am experiencing. So therefore, I will just keep limping in the Lord. And you can watch it. Because my testimony is not in my own ability. It is not in my own opportunity. It's not in my own strength to overcome. My testimony is in the fact that when I am weak, then I am strong. When I surrender to the Lord, then I win. When I give up, that's when victory happens. When Christ said, not my will, but yours be done, you know what the result of that was? The most difficult and horrifying and torturous moment in all time in history, the perfect, sinless Son of God dying on the cross, which accomplished the victory over sin and death and signed the deed to a new creation and new heavens. And the resurrection of his body and our own. Through surrender comes great victory. And Jacob is given this limp as a reminder that God can overcome us at any point if he desired to do so. But he does not blow out a smoldering wick. He deals with us in what, from his perspective, is all gentleness. He desires to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we may walk out the life of faith with a limp. God not only overcomes our hostility, he gives us a new character. The bestowal of a new name is a sign of that surrender. God now gets to choose my name, choose my character, choose my path, my identity going forward. I am confessing. I'm the clay. He's the potter. Mold me, shape me. And my giving up of self-sufficiency and my total reliance upon God is the transformation of faith. That is the change in character. 
But what's interesting is what I might have thought at first was something of my own doing, an act of my own will, I discovered was also the work of grace in my life. Paul says those wonderful words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. Oftentimes when you sit down with a young couple in marriage counseling, uh, you tell them how important it is uh, to communicate. Communication is important, right? And you tell them as part of this communication that if the marriage is to succeed, both must be willing to accept the other as they are. Few things destine a marriage to failure more unavoidably than one of the partners going into it with the thought that they will change the partner once they're married. They're told instead that they must love who the person is, not just the person they would like their spouse to become. To approach the marriage expecting change is very, very dangerous and also very, very futile. We can't change them. But here's a big difference. God's relationship with us is not like this. While it is true that God loves us as we are and where we are, it is his desire and it is his right to transform us. Additionally, unlike a spouse, God has the power to transform us. The problem is that most of us are not motivated to change. There's not enough at stake. So God brings us to a place where we are cold, afraid, and alone. He meets us there. He shows us that he could overpower us in an instant, but lets us continue to cling to him in faith. And he leaves us with a reminder of our encounter. All of this to teach us. All of this to strip us of our self-sufficiency. To bring us to a place of surrender and to give us a new name. This is the process that's important. This is the reason why God doesn't snap his fingers and sanctify us in the blink of an eye. Trust the process. Continue surrendering to the Lord more and more and finding that victory in the Christian life. This is the victory in surrender. We win with God by losing to God. And when we come to the table, what is the table except that? Surrender. You're saying, I don't feed myself, God. You feed me. You feed my spirit, my soul, my life. I don't provide for myself, Lord. You provide for me. And this life that we call the Christian life. The table is set. Means I didn't set it. The table is prepared means that I cannot go up on that cross and die for myself. Another has done that. And Jacob learned this lesson. When he discovered that the person he wrestled with was the pre-incarnate Christ. He confessed this word in naming the place Peniel. It is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. 
Why is it that Jacob can see God face to face and his life be spared? Other places in the scripture, including Exodus, talk about how God cannot be seen. Moses wants to see God's glory, and God says, I'll show you my behind, but you can't see anything else, because if you see me, you will die. Why is that? That's because the one who wrestled with Jacob is the one who would die on the cross for Jacob's sins. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jacob learned from Jesus the importance of surrender and faith. And Jesus, in his incarnate state, would learn the importance of those things as well when he died on the cross for our sins. We win with God by losing to God. So throw up your white flags. Stop depending on your own strength. Trust in the Lord and come to the table. Amen. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful word. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us in it all the more. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that we would know how good you are to us in bringing us to a place of surrender in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would deepen the surrender more and more in us, that we might come to depend upon you more and more on ourselves, less and less, and find our rest and peace in Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior who's provided all things that we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.